talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome to our podcast, more like the worst wing. <laughs> I'm Stu, and this is my co-host Dave. Dave, say hello. Hello, Stu. How's it going today? It's going great. You ready to uh, take a look at our first episode here, the pilot episode of the West Wing, and really rip it to shreds? <laughs> Absolutely, although I will say that as far as my expectations for the show goes, this episode was... I mean, it's the pilot, so uh, all pilots are just generically like, you know, you. it is nothing like the rest of the show eventually. Totally. But I think this episode was relatively mild, so my vitriol will not be quite as dialed in today. I, I, I agree. Uh, as pilots go, it's a pretty well-written pilot for all the characters that has to introduce. It has to do a lot of heavy lifting in that regard, and there's really only a couple few things here that can... I could really get angry about, but uh, without fur- any further ado, why don't we describe our episode plot here? Take her away. Okay, so we open with uh, all a montage of our various characters, all showing how hard they are at work. Uh, Toby's working so hard that the airline security has to try to interrupt him. CJ's working so hard she's on a treadmill. Josh is working <laughs> so hard he's falling asleep at his desk, etc., etc., you get the idea our characters are hard workers. They are all awoken or distracted by a page letting them know that POTUS has run his bicycle into a tree, which of course is a red alert, all hands on deck, and they all start uh, mobilizing uh, as we find out that of course POTUS stands for President of the United States, uh, which, is of co- which is the big reveal before we get into the intro credits uh, of yep. the cold open. And the, the concept of this acronym being foreign to, oh, you know, anybody on the planet in this, the year of our Lord 2018, <laughs> is a wonderful kind of anachronism. Yes. Um, yeah. No kidding. <laughs> so after our cold open, we get into the more meat of the episode where we find out the actual political crisis of the day beyond the president driving a bike into a tree is that we've got a few hundred Cuban immigrants floating their way up from Cuba towards Florida. They are refugees seeking asylum, uh, and the White House has to deal with that in various ways. The other issue that comes to light is that our very hardworking uh, Deputy Chief of Staff, Josh Lyman, went on some TV morning show or something and called out a what might be charitably described as a religious right-wing personalities god as being mammon or you know a reference to money right uh basically implying that she worships prosperity gospel uh and doesn't actually follow the tenets of her religion uh, a relatively minor dig as things go but our characters will act like it was the greatest upset uh, to grease the airwaves. Well, and uh, you know, these people are all cowards and have tremendously thin skin. <laughs> um, beyond that, uh, I, those are our main pushes for the episode where uh, the president then ends up coming in, resolving the religious leaders' dispute. There's a bit of a question of, is Josh going to get fired for this blunder? Spoiler alert, he does not. Um, 
But uh, the, the bulk of the episode is really about dealing with uh, the Cubans and then the religious crisis, for the most part. There are two kind of throwaway, um, not quite comic relief, but uh, setting stage for future um, character. Actually, so there's three things that happen that are sort of side plots to the political stuff. One is that um, Sam Seaborn, I think, what is his position again? That's, deputy uh, communications he is director. Deputy communications director. <laughs> yeah, Sam Seaborn is has blundered into a relationship of a sort, or at least, at the very least, a one-night stand. Will he continue to see this woman who is actually, turns out, through, you know, some comedic timing and the use of archaic technology, a sex worker? Right. Um, yeah, and then this becomes a whole big deal because, you know, he works at the White House, he can't be seen with a sex worker, of course not, it would be the end of his job, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's a bit of a moral crisis there. It doesn't really get resolved this episode, um, but it is brought up at least. And then what would be the other minor comedy bit? Sam, being, you know, a star oh, right, with, the ladies, <laughs> with the ladies, now I is remember. introduced to a classroom of fourth graders who are Correct. in the yeah. White House for a tour, and by hook or by crook, he is ordered to go take these people and these kids on a tour or tell them something about the White House, and because, told, because, because they're Leo's McGarry's fourth grade class. Yes, or Leo McGarry's daughter's fourth grade class. <laughs> and, of course, it comes out that Leo McGarry's daughter is a teacher because Leo McGarry's of like course. 60 years old, man. <laughs> yeah, because Sam really thought that <laughs> Leo McGarry had a fourth grade age child. And so just to, like, to really drive it home, it's like, if you were watching this for the first time in 1999, Rob Lowe gets so much face time in this episode that you would think it's going to be a vehicle for Rob Lowe. Right. Uh, maybe until the president shows up, and then you might think, oh, okay, it's Martin Sheen's show. Uh, but <laughs> definitely, much more so than Josh, Rob is really our protagonist for this pilot episode. <laughs> Uh, and yep. that matches up with something about, originally, this was supposed to be a Rob Lowe vehicle, essentially. Um, originally, there was going to be literally no president at all, and they were going to just show the staff interacting with him in a very kind of conspicuous off-camera way, kind of like Maris on Frasier, where, like, we never see him, but we hear about his influence or stuff like that. They ended up scrapping that and actually incorporating the president in a much bigger way. Uh, but I imagine in that incarnation of the show, Rob Lowe would have been even more so a main character than he is in this episode. Yep, and the whole thing wraps up with what, in my mind, and while watching this, just like, damn near like a facepalm level of breaking the otherwise excellent pacing of the episode by introducing Martin Sheen as the president. Mm-hmm, but we'll, uh, we'll cross that when we get back into our topic-by-topic uh, -topic breakdown. And that uh, but is that's a good summation. Yeah, that's a good summation of the episode's plot. Let's move on to the issues. Uh, we need to talk about Mandy. Uh, yes, Ma we Mandy, <laughs> Mandy, uh, in the words of Barry Manilow, man, oh Mandy. Um. So Mandy, we didn't cover in the episode recap, but Mandy is a political consultant who has uh, recently just started working again. Uh, she's working for a senator, 
uh, I forget the senator's name, uh, but he's a Republican senator. And our intro to Mandy is her speeding through the streets of D.C. Uh, while on a cell phone having, you know, a very politically powerful conversation, uh, paying no mind to anyone around her, driving extremely dangerously. In her cool she gets M3 convertible. Right, yeah, in her, in her very expensive car, of course. Um, she gets pulled over by the cops and acts basically just extremely annoyed that this is happening to her. Um, and so if this is supposed to be visual shorthand for making us hate this character out of the gate, then Sorkin has done a killer job here, and I'll give him all the praise in the world. But the problem is we're supposed to kind of like this character, because she ends up siding with our team, like, half the time in this first season. Yeah, and it's this weird invocation of these god-awful, kind of like, again, your your almost mid-80s power player tropes and right you expect shoulder pads almost exactly and it's like full credit to having a a strong female character here but it's not sympathetic qualities that you're putting out here like right and And that's fine too if you want to make a strong female villain that's also (laughs) really cool you know you if you make her competent everything but again she's not actually a villain so this characterization really kind of hurts when we're supposed to end up sympathizing with her like more than half the time (laughs) i think you you also mentioned that it's like even like the cinematography of the Mandy segment changes versus the rest right it's like this panning action shots Yeah, the rest of the show is just this normal walk and talk, you know, like sometimes we get some dynamic camera work of panning over to a guy, or we see some papers get shuffled around in a kind of interesting way, but then Mandy, like, screams into the show, like she's out of, busting out of an action show, like she's on, like, she's running away from the cops in the Beverly Hillbillies and accidentally drove onto the West Wing set, like. Yeah, and so it is, it is just a bizarre choice of inclusion and frankly you know as if anybody listening has been a fan of the show for some time mandy is generally among the fan base just reviled and it's no surprise that they end up just kind of writing her off after season one once once Spoilers. they once they all like us also realize like what's the point of this character exactly we've already got a white house full of like assholes power players that are strong female leads, what niche does Mandy fill, really? Right. Oh, Mandy. <laughs> yes, and that that is the Mandy problem. <laughs> Alright, so the first issue that is kind of raised within the pilot episode as, you know, something that is a political challenge to the administration, the administration is played as sort of being not particularly popular, they are embattled well, they're out new. the gate. They're yeah, new. and they're they're embattled out the gate because they didn't come into the White House with a mandate. Right. Or whatever. And so <laughs> there is sort of a throughout the the pilot it's just pretty um there's a broad spectrum of political issues that would be considered acceptable socially quote unquote leftist positions in the framework of a Clintonian third way thing. So the big kind of geopolitical thing that they bring up is this issue of Cuban refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, you know, a flotilla of refugees seeking, you know, a better life in America approaching 
the coast of Florida, and they are torn over how to interact with it. Now, you know, <laughs> America, the U.S. basically, and, and this is very much informed by the show's sort of post-Cold Warrior thing that is it is basically a hangover from how the world worked for the last 40 years because right. Cuba was a Russian, or a, excuse me, a Soviet client state. Yeah, the Cuban, the Cuban Missile, Missile Crisis, crisis <laughs> it was only three decades or so old. Yeah, and it defined the the consciousness of a generation, you know, living under the threat of the Cold War or whatever. But mm-hmm. at the time, I mean, we were 40 years past the revolution when, you know, Che and Castro took power, and <laughs> it was essentially a lot of American meddling, intervention, literal blockading, trade work, all of this stuff that led to Cuba being in a bad place that refugees want to flee from. Right. Um, so This is one of these things that also hasn't dated extremely well, because I feel like in 2018 you're much more likely to see flow going the opposite way <laughs> of people leaving Florida to go back to Cuba. <laughs> Uh, well, and so, um, actually, personal story, me and my family went to Havana in 2011, prior to the blockade being lifted mm-hmm. um, under the o- Obama administration. I mean, had a spectacular time, and let me tell you, I live in New York City now, and I have never, ever felt safer, more welcomed, um, just generally at home while on, like, a trip to a to a different place than I did when I was in Havana. Mm. It is, it's a lovely place full of lovely, welcoming people. So as a disclaimer, I am initially quite biased in favor (laughs) of Cuban people. So listening to in this show where the option is basically like, should we be taking military action to? Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is what really shocked me out of the gate is like, they're, Everyone agrees that, A, this is a problem, like a big problem. Not, not an, No one sees an opportunity here. Everyone just agrees, oh, this is a problem. Wouldn't it be better if this hadn't happened today? And then the second thing is that they immediately jump to, like, some of the harshest possible solutions <laughs> for this particular issue. When, like, to me, and I'm, you know, I'm some idiot with a BA and a marketing degree, but, like, isn't the obvious solution just, like, go round them up, bring them to America safely, and then, like, have customs deal with them. Why, why are we talking about the military at all? Well, and so this is actually... This is actually super bizarre because one of the things that the Clinton administration did that was quite shady was it actually amended a policy, and this was... Why, why this issue is so complicated is because this they amended a policy that had stood in place for probably 30, I think it was 30 years, the Clinton um, foreign policy team, whatever blood-gargling psychopath was in charge, <laughs> made a modification to a what at one point was just a blanket asylum agreement. If a Cuban refugee was by hook or by crook in U.S. custody of some form, they were <laughs> essentially given an expedited path to citizenship and left alone. Mm-hmm. You know, given the opportunity to become a citizen of the U.S., the Clinton admin actually modified this policy, I think it was in 1995 or 1996, to 
what would become known as the quote-unquote wet foot, dry foot policy. Oh, boy. Where if a Cuban physically set foot, as in they were standing on soil claimed by the United States, they were given a chance to seek asylum, you know, an expedited path to citizenship, all of this stuff. If their feet were wet, i.e. still on a boat, Mm -hmm. uh, rescued at sea, found adrift somewhere, Mm -hmm. they would be forcibly repatriated. Oof. So... There so is, then I assume at that point the Coast Guard just made sure that they never hit land. And so this, and exa- well, exactly, there are instances where the military or whoever, you know, finds a person. I think there was a, a case in the Florida Keys where a group of refugees ended up being stranded on what is a decommissioned bridge that spans from, I don't know, from the mainland somewhere to the Keys and the Coast Guard or whatever uh, administration official was in charge made the argument that because they were standing on a part of the United States that was no longer oh my God. in service or something, right. that they needed to be sent back to Cuba. Oh, my God. I know so, what you're talking about. That bridge, <laughs> that bridge um, that's, that goes through the Keys, that's where they filmed um, uh, True Lies, uh, the action scene oh, uh, yeah, in True yeah, yeah, Lies. Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah, shit. I've, I've driven down that road and you can go see that, that old piece of highway still off to the side, or at least it was <laughs> the last time I drove down to Key West. So this actually, this episode being filmed in the middle of 1999 sometime actually presaged the Alien Gonzalez, uh, controversy that right. consumed an enormous amount of cultural bandwidth in the United States in the year 2000. There was Right, which kind of brought a lot of more eyes on this issue. (laughs) Exactly. And it's actually super fascinating because essentially the fundamental contradiction of that wet foot, dry foot policy resulted in what was a tremendous media kerfuffle about Alan Gonzalez because he was handed over by a fisherman who rescued him and like three of the 50 other people who were on a raft and who all died. These, these fishermen handed him over to the coast guard. And so when they got him to land, what, what's the status of him there by this policy? Are his feet wet? Are his feet dry? Who knows? And so this is all this, this, this barbaric sort of technocratic. And I think you'll, You'll find me using that word a lot throughout the course of this show, hopefully, because it is a just sort of a weird, wonkish, and by degree approach to writing these policies that just ends up being incredibly difficult to enforce, forcing controversy in this regard, and also being good for basically nobody except for whatever think tank happens to write that particular policy. Right. Um, I guess my my views on the whole thing can be summed up by the quote that's on the Statue of Liberty from the New Colossus of "Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free." You know, I feel you know immigration is what built this country. You know, it's the one one of the few good things I can point to about America is us being a nation of immigrants. And so, to have these, like you say, technocratic policies that just remove the humanity from the equation. 
uh, and just to make sure that we can all agree that rules were followed uh, is a really sort of gross political practice. And it's very, um, very on point for the year 2018. Yeah, immigration, a hot button issue, as always. So the next issue that sort of comes to the fore and actually is, is threaded throughout the pilot episode is that Sam Seaborn had a romantic liaison, you know, uh, beginning basically even before the credits roll, um, with a woman who, through the extremely narratively convenient use of misplaced pagers, they swap their pagers and he takes a call and calls them back and finds out that this woman actually works for an escort service. Dun, dun, dun! Uh, um, and so he, he was, there was, there was nothing prior to this that would have tipped him off. Correct. To it being the case that she is a, a sex worker. Um, and frankly, again, watching this for the first time in several years and in 2018, this is almost this is almost extremely impressive and progressive for me because the character of Lori, played by a wonderful actress named Lisa Edelstein, um, is not only a stark sort of contrast to the stereotypical Washington D.C. power broker Sam Seaborn character, mm-hmm. but she's incredibly real throughout her, admittedly, what's going to be spoilers, a brief run <laughs> in the show. But it's just, there. there is so much about this character that is pitch perfect and really well done. And frankly, until later, at least in the pilot episode that we're concerned with currently, it is given an entirely fair shake of just being a regular-ass person. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I'd like to note here is of interest is that, you know, not only is, like, her house and apartment or whatever portrayed as just sort of stereotypically nice as opposed to, like, a crack den like we might expect <laughs> or whatever. Um, ironically, this is something that's going to get brought up much later on when they finally tackle the marijuana legalization issue, but we see her smoking weed, and uh, Sam just politely refuses in a way that indicates he does not mind that she's about to smoke weed. Um, so it seems like the show is pretty liberal about its stance on weed in this moment, but lately we will not, we will find that to not be the case later on. (laughs) And it is, yeah, and there is nothing, gosh, for a network TV show, you know, we were talking about what the time slot was for this, this show. It initially aired Wednesdays at 9 p.m., so it's not like... You know, we're not talking middle of the night, late, late show with Craig Ferguson or whatever. Right. Um, at this time. So it is a prime time television show. And these portrayals of these things, at least sort of in the current vacuum, are quite progressive. And also, <laughs> I just, I want to talk about Lisa Edelstein because oh, she yeah. seems like, for it. As, as an actress, she's extreme. She's, I wrote in my notes, she's C-spam as hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> she was, she started out and I'm, just kind of small biography. She was a club kid in the NYC like club scene in the late '80s, um, and coming out of kind of this like you know just a very scene type of existence, she actually wrote and performed a musical by herself about being HIV positive in 1989. Wow! So this is before Magic Johnson. This is before Freddie Mercury, and it's just like oh okay, you know, 
cool. Like that, that's great. And in addition to this, she, she's played all these other sort of characters. Her biggest role was as Dr. Cuddy in the TV show House. Big fan. So, Big fan. Yep. And so she was essentially cast to put up with Hugh Laurie being an abusive jerk for seven <laughs> fucking seasons. And she did an admirable <laughs> job also. <laughs> and so she was also in Seinfeld briefly. Uh, she played a transgender woman for five episodes of the Ally McBeal show, if anybody remembers that shit with the dancing baby. Um, she was in Sports Night, another Sorkin show. Surprise! Uh. <laughs> um, and, I mean, the biggest thing that I saw was there are pictures of her standing on the Writers Guild picket line in 2008. Hell yeah. Everybody went on strike. Solidarity so, for Lisa Edelstein. Good for fucking her. Fucking solidarity, sister. Good for her. Uh, and this was one of my favorite parts about this episode. Totally. Agreed. And our final major issue of the episode is this conflict between our Deputy Chief of Staff, Josh Lyman, and these various religious leaders. There's three main ones, basically. Uh, but Josh went on a morning show. Is it the Capital Beat morning show? Is it this? I think, that's, we, what they, I think that's what they call are it. Are we getting into the canon that early? Yeah, Capital Beat <laughs> yep. will become a recurring uh, sort of <laughs> the default talk show that they always go on. Um and during this appearance, he, you know, he accuses her of praying to the mammon god and, you know, being a prosperity gospel worshipping piece of shit. Not in those words, of course, but basically in words rude enough that they feel he should apologize. They think his job might be threatened. Um, throughout the whole episode, there's a running through line of, is Josh going to get fired or not? With several characters basically answering like, I don't know, it's up to the president. Yeah, and so- I was, I was just going to say that, like, this is this is something that bugs the hell out of me. Um, just treatment of religion and the entrenchment of the religious right as a as one of the sides in a culture war. And, I mean, frankly, you can hear it in the, the Wesseling Weekly podcast. I mean, credit to them so far, but Josh Molina and Rishi just go on about, like, oh, we're going to both sides this shit, like... Oh, everybody uses caustic and vitriolic language. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, but one side essentially wants us to roll back to, like, barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, my right. dude. Right, and, yeah, it's like, not about dying. the language, it's about the goals, you know? Um, which is, of course, a very, just a very awful thing to focus on. But, um, so, our resolution to this, it's hung up in the air throughout the whole episode, oh my god, is Josh going to get fired, he's going to have to apologize, I don't even know if that'll save his job, blah blah blah. It's a big dramatic moment, and it gets resolved by uh, our president entering and basically laying the smack down on these religious leaders by citing enough Bible at them to prove that they're hypocrites, which of course is a thing that has worked on religious people all the time, always, uh, throughout history. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh, I love this. It's this very liberal idea of if you just debate the right, the right, if you debate the right way, they'll just be totally disarmed, and they'll have to come to your view eventually. Well, it's, I mean, it's its amazing, and it's also, it's, it's woven throughout the fabric of the language of compromise in American society. It's like, if you, if you say the magic words in the magic order, 
everyone's brain will just flip off and say, oh, I, I truly I have been owned. You know, you know, deliver unto me the, the reality in this situation when really it's just like that's never how it's fucking worked. It has never worked out that and way. Then, you know? Go ahead, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say people, people act based on their emotions and there have been studies and studies and studies of basically just saying, well, when people are actually confronted with contradictory information, it doesn't make them change their minds. It right. makes them entrench further. Yeah, they just lock in harder. <laughs> yeah, you can't ration some rationalize someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. Essentially, exactly. Um, exactly. Now, uh, I'm gonna play a clip here from the episode where uh, they argue about the Ten Commandments. I'm afraid that's just tough, Mrs. Marsh. The first commandment says, "Honor thy father." No, it doesn't. Toby, it doesn't. Listen, to no. I mean, if I'm going to make you sit through this preposterous exercise, we're going to get the names of the damn commandments right. Okay, here we go. Honor thy father is the third commandment. Then what's the first commandment? And I'd like to point out here that Toby is wrong. Uh, <laughs> not even close. Uh, the honor thy father and mother commandment, depending on which interpretation you go on, if you're Jewish, like I am and like Toby is, to us it was always taught as number five, honor thy father and mother, right after uh, honor the Sabbath day at four. But even if he's trying to meet the Christians halfway and going by the way they number it, uh, it would be four, not three, Toby. So if you're trying to have your smug I own you moment because I know this thing that you don't know and you're wrong about it, it's we really need to start counter for this because this is a common theme that will happen throughout this show. Put this one up on the board. Yeah, ding! Where a character just tries to to smugly own the shit out of someone and does it with completely incorrect information. <laughs> yep. The and actually one of the things again um, that I feel like they they almost they almost get right and for a television audience would have actually probably um, done them a, a great service to dig a little deeper into is that actually. Um, one of the religious leaders, the woman whose name I'm not even going to bother to dredge up, um, mentions, uh, uses the phrase New York sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And this is, and Toby correctly uh, calls her out for saying that she means Jewish. Right. Um, and so this is the, like, straight out the gate in the show, is the introduction of the concept of a dog whistle, which we are all very, unfortunately, familiar with. Right. In the year 2018, you know, it is coded language that the right people or the target people for it understand implicitly as meaning one thing without them having to say it. Now, yeah, you saw this in the 2016 debates with Ted Cruz bringing up New York values, uh, and it's basically the same thing, just a, an intonation to mean like liberal or Jewy values, essentially. Yeah, and... Unfortunately, the show doesn't really dig in on that, and I get I get it for for pacing for writing purposes. You know, it's not particularly convenient at that moment to go well, further down that road. I think it's used as a nice little moment for Toby and Josh to establish to us, the audience, that yeah, this person is real bad. You yeah, know, and and also some um, it's an opportunity for just kind of camaraderie that hadn't quite yet been established between between Toby those and Josh. two. Correct. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and then finally, the last thing here is 
the president entering in with the I am the Lord thy God moment and like, you know, <laughs> this just total veneration of executive power, uh, which is really, again, I don't have a better word for it, but gross, uh, where, and we just saw where this leads to with Obama and executive orders and droning, and it's just, we shouldn't, you know, president shouldn't be Superman, God King. You know, the president is a civil servant and part of a government that has three branches that all work with each other. You know, like basic civics shit. But, but this show goes out of its way to just completely venerate. Like, no, it's all this one man and his supporting staff. Yeah, and you would think that given the pacing of this episode to date, you know, to the... 37 minute mark or whatever where it has been somewhat crisp you know just a nice montage plenty of walk and talks a day in the life essentially yeah exactly and when martin sheen shows up okay i get it that he's your star power or whatever you know we're banking on this guy to you know kind of carry the burden of this show but the even the pacing of the shots the dialogue and stuff just gets completely fucked up Um, right it's like flip. It's like the fucking Mandy scene. It's like flipping a switch. Um, yeah, it stops being the witty repartee back and forth, and now it is just a series of owns delivered by President Bartlett. <laughs> yeah. While and, whilst the religious reader, blah blah blah, whilst the religious leaders react in shock slash horror at how owned they have been. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you know, okay, sure, you know, if you have a certain perspective of the president as a person or outside of the office or whatever, that's fine. But we, this is the first time motherfucker is on screen. You have never seen this guy before. Why are we, what entitles him to treatment in, in this fashion where it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's basically like them making supplication to this guy you right. know, for eight minutes at the end of the episode. Something that will come up in another future episode with the whole, uh, when I stand, nobody sits bullshit. <laughs> like, get over yourself. Well, and you're, you're already the president. Do you really need the ego boost of everyone has to stand up when you walk in the room? Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it's setting this expectation that I feel like in, America, in a lot of American culture is almost unavoidable, but is just so incredibly toxic to consolidate the, uh, you know, a, a lot of power over millions of lives and deaths into the person of one political office. And it right. is just, yes, maybe it works well as a dramatic engine or as a dramatic license for you to take, but there are so many people in my life who invoke President Bartlett as like, yeah. oh, well, what if, what if he was in this situation? And it's basically just, it feels like this desire for a benevolent dictator, and that's not what the president should be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's, I think I said this before, it's just like, we're, we're there are so many people who are secret monarchists, and right. it's like, stuff like this plays directly to that very venal desire to just be told everything's okay, and to not have to think about it and be provided with, I don't care if the information, or I guess the, the really the phrase would be just like benevolent, I don't care how benevolent you are, It's it fundamentally subverts the idea of a democratic governance. Exactly. 
And that does it for this episode of more like the worst wing. Uh, if we're the pilot. Looking forward um, to wrap up. Uh, I'd love to for me and Stu here to rate the episode on a scale of one to ten uh, two times. The first time just rating it as a piece of television fiction, and the second time reading rating it as uh, how are the politics in this episode, <laughs> where one is total garbo and ten is wow surprisingly good. So for this particular episode, I'm going to say as a piece of television, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. It's definitely one of the better pilots I've seen. Uh, it has a lot of work to do as a pilot, and uh, it does does that work in a very economical and uh, interesting fashion. So for me, it's probably a 7 out of 10, so we are very closely aligned. I think that it is, especially at the time, it was somewhat, I don't want to say risky, but it was a lot of stuff to do in a short time period, and it was... It definitely was unique. Yeah, it was crafted well, and they pretty well accomplished the objective, and certainly, had I been approached to, as a pitch, had I been pitched with this, it would have been definitely enough to grab me. Totally. Um, And then, from a politics standpoint, I'm going to give it like a 6 out of 10. There's nothing that objectionable other than their immediate desire to get a military intervention with these Cuban refugees. Uh, but I'll give them a little bonus point for a positive portrayal of a sex worker, which in 1999 was practically unheard of. Yeah, I will also back off a little bit and give it a 5 of 10. I'm pretty much neutral on this episode. Again, major props to their treatment of um, sex workers and just generically uh, strong female characters, strong female leads, um, at least... Yeah at least in this instance, in this 45 minutes of television, you know, yeah. pretty good, but nothing particularly right. objectionable or on the other way. And that wraps up this episode. We thank you for joining us. I've been Dave. And I have, and will continue to be Stu. You can reach us um, if you'd like to, I don't know, give us feedback, yell at us, call us jerks. Uh, the official show email account is theworstwing69 at gmail.com. We welcome and revel in your fruitless feedback. We will either make fun of you or incorporate it into the show. Yeah, and hopefully uh, we'll we'll get even more interesting going forward. Um, So we look forward to that, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you if you happen to be listening. All right. Bye now. But don't ask me to come on along.